Um, we're in, the, in, in chapter 2, and uh, the passage that Aaron read for us begins in verse 12 and runs through verse 17. Um, this morning, I want to just focus in on those final three verses, 15 through 17. Uh, those first several verses of the section, 12, 13, 14, kind of just give us a little bit more of John's heart and his intention behind uh, writing this letter to this network of house churches that he is shepherding. And, uh, and then in verses 15 through 17, he moves to this conversation that's incredibly important. It was important for that particular group of Christ followers back then, and it's still just as relevant and important for us today. And the conversation has to do with what is the Christian's relationship with the world? As followers of Jesus, what kind of relationship does God desire for us to have with this thing called the world? Now, we'll obviously need to define what the biblical author means when he says the word world, but we have to wrestle with the reality that each one of us, just like every other human, has a relationship with the world that we live in. So in this passage... Starting in verse 15, John speaks very clearly and bluntly in some ways, where he says, do not love the world or anything in the world, okay? So it seems pretty straightforward. The Christian relationship with the world is one that we should not love it. This raises some questions for us, though, especially as those who have some familiarity with the rest of the Bible, particularly with the gospel that John himself wrote, the gospel of John, Probably the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, which starts, For God so loved the world. Now, it'd be nice if we could go back and say, well, actually, in the Greek, there's two different words for world, and there's one in John 3.16, and there's one in 1 John 2.15, and so they mean different things. They're the same word. They're both the Greek word cosmos, which has, we understand has to do with the world. And so on one hand, John seems to be saying that God loves the world, and therefore loving the world is a good thing, and we also ought to love the world. But then he says, don't love the world or anything in the world. And so what's important for us when we're asking this question, the relationship between Christians and the world, is to understand that even though it's the same word, the Bible uses that word in two different senses. The Bible uses the word world in a couple of different ways that mean significantly uh, different things. And on one hand, God calls us to love the world as he loves the world. And on the other hand, he calls us to actually hate the world and to avoid the world. And so I think for many of us, if you have paid attention to the various expressions of Christianity throughout the years, you'll see that this question actually has a lot to do with how we organize our lives and our faith as the church. And so there are some expressions of Christianity that have really taken this idea that we ought to love the world, that we ought to get involved in the world, we have to be present in the world, we want to be with those that are in the world. And there's a lot that's really beautiful and good about that. But the trajectory is that eventually some of those expressions of Christianity become so entrenched in the world that the followers of Jesus are indistinguishable from the rest of the world. That we become worldly in the sense that there's nothing different about us, nothing that would set us apart. We've simply synchronized with culture and, uh, and don't stand apart in any sense at all. On the other hand, you have uh, Christian traditions that 
reject the world, stay away from the world. They pull themselves away from culture and society. They form their own kind of uh, little Christian bubbles and stay away from anything that looks worldly. And so they may be living kind of these private, holy lives, but they aren't engaged in loving their neighbors or serving the poor or getting involved in what God's doing. And so you can see the way we answer this question has radical trajectories, and, uh, and that's why I actually think it's important. What is the relationship God desires followers of Jesus to have with the world? And so, like I said, there's two meanings of this word in the Scripture. The first is that the word world can mean the material universe God has created, It's kind of just the way we casually use the world. The planet, the atmosphere, people, trees, mountains, oceans, rivers, uh, kind of just all of the material, physical universe that as Christians, we recognize that at some point, in some way, God is the ultimate creator and architect of. And so oftentimes, the biblical writers use the word world simply to speak of all that exists and that God has spoken into being and uh, said that was good. The other way is that world can mean a system of thinking where the material world becomes ultimate. Okay? And so in John 3.16, which way is God, which world is God loving? The first way, right? God cares about the world. And it's not just people, but he cares about his entire creation so much that he gave his one and only son. Okay, so world, referring to all that is. And then secondly, in in 1 John 2, world meaning this way of thinking where the material, physical world is all that there is. It's the way of thinking as if there were no God, or at least that God has no involvement or presence or anything to say or do in the world. Okay, so that's how John is using the term world here in this epistle. And so uh, the, the biblical world word, oh my gosh, the biblical word that refers to this second way of thinking as if the world is all that there is, is worldliness, okay? Worldliness is this way of thinking where this world is all there is, this world without God. So the Bible uses the term in both ways, and uh, it's important to pay attention. And so... Um, In this passage, we're talking about this second definition, and we're talking about how to avoid worldliness in the way where we don't turn the world into something more than it was meant to be. But before we kind of understand what that looks like, I want to look at the other side in the sense of what does the Bible affirm to be good and true and beautiful about the physical material world that we, uh, that we live in and that God has given to us. And so the Bible, I would argue, has a very high view of the material world. And in some ways, that's one of the things that sets Christianity apart from other faiths and religions. Other faiths and religions, not all, but many, have a low view of the material world and say that the ultimate goal of faith or life or nirvana or whatever is to get away, to separate ourselves from earth, from flesh, from humanity, and to attain some higher level of enlightenment or something like that. And there's even elements of Christianity uh, or strains of Christianity that have that same idea that this world and everything in it is bad and what we really are all about is going away to heaven. 
And that's not actually the way the Bible talks about the world. And so I would argue that in these major movements of the story of God, starting with creation, we see this really high view of the world. In the beginning chapters of the Bible, in creation, God speaks joyfully uh, all that is into existence. And sun and moon and planets and stars, the heavens and the earth and plants and animals and ultimately humanity. And after every single time he creates, he looks back and he says what? It is good. It is good. It is good. And ultimately, it is very good. And so in the beginning, the Bible starts by presenting the world as we know it and God pronouncing that it is good, that God as an artist or as a creator has created something and has said that it is good. That's where the story of the world starts in the Bible. And then if you fast forward to the moment in the, in the story when uh, Jesus comes into the world, we understand that to be God showing up in the form of a human moving into a particular place and living with these people, speaking their language, participating in their lives. Jesus takes on flesh and blood. The creator, in, in a sense, becomes part of creation. So Jesus is later called the firstborn of all creation, not necessarily chronologically, but meaning he is the ultimate expression of God's creative beauty. And so the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, can be understood to be, again, God's affirmation, pronouncement that the world is good. I love this world that, that I've made. I'm not going to give up on it. I'm going to enter into it and become part of it. Thirdly, when in the movement of redemption, ultimately as it climaxes of the story of Jesus dying on the cross, we see that as an expression of God's commitment and love for this world. As John 3.16 says, or even if you just turn a few verses over in 1 John 2.2, he says, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. That sounds like a big deal. That as Jesus dies, he's not just dying for us, meaning Christians, but on the cross, he's dying for the sins of the world. God loves the world and is committed to it. The next thing that happens in the story is the resurrection. Jesus doesn't stay dead. As I said, that tomb is empty. I've been there before. It's pretty sweet. Jesus rises again. So after his death and burial, he doesn't go away to heaven, but he re-enters humanity. He re-enters life on earth in a glorified kind of being. But it's this beautiful uh, message of God again saying that my reconciliation, my restoration, my plan for redemption is for this place, for these people, for the whole world. One of the first things Jesus does after his resurrection, is goes down to the beach and has a barbecue, and he eats a fish, right? That's a crazy picture when you think about the spectrum of world religions and, and uh, faith views. No other, uh, no other faith view I know holds to a God who eats fish, um, who barbecues, who has a very earthy, very human element. He gets hungry. Jesus continues to be human. And then finally, the future chapter of this story that we are anticipating and moving towards is the chapter of restoration. 
the day where Jesus returns and brings with him all the kingdom of God. And what we believe to be true based on the last two chapters of the Bible, most clearly, but all the way throughout the story, is that one day Jesus truly will reconcile all things back to the Father. And so the vision at the end of, of the Christian view of history isn't that we fly away to a place called heaven, but it's that God brings heaven to earth and renews everything, remakes everything, so much so that it's called a new heavens and a new earth. What's the point? Creation, incarnation, redemption, resurrection, restoration, all of the major chapters in the story of God affirm for us his love for the world his commitment to this planet, to this race, to everything that he's made, that he is making all things new. Okay, so I want to make sure we get that because it's important for us in this question of what's the Christian relationship to the world to understand that God does love the world and therefore we ought to also in these ways. And so real quickly, what would that look like? I won't spend a lot of time, but I can think of several ways that if God loves the world and has expressed it through his story interaction, that we also ought to love the world. The first would be that we affirm and recognize the image of God in every single person. That if God created humanity in his own image and likeness and said that it is good and has stamped his image upon every single human, then that means that we would be committed to calling out, to affirming and celebrating his image of God, his image in every person everywhere. That means that as Christians, our ethic of loving one another, including loving our neighbor, including of loving our enemy, it all starts with this vision of the Imago Dei that all humans bear God's image, no matter what, black or white or every color, in between, male or female, child, adult, elderly, gay or straight, born or unborn, Christian or Muslim, beaver or duck, maybe, like every single person bears the image of God and therefore is to be treated with dignity, with respect, to be protected, to be celebrated, and to be loved. In several places throughout the scripture, God confronts his people for saying that they love him while hating their neighbor. And he goes, how can you say you love me while you hate those who bear my image? And starting in Genesis, this is the foundation for an ethic of nonviolence. Genesis 9, don't do violence to one another because when you do, you are being violent towards the image of God, okay? So if God loves the world, then one implication would be that we would celebrate and affirm the image of God in everybody, everywhere. Christians should be known for that. Secondly, I would say that we would celebrate the human contribution to culture, if we go back to the Genesis story, you have God creating this beautiful garden for humanity to dwell and flourish, but then he gives them a job. So in a perfect world, or at least in a good world, uh, we work, we cultivate, and this picture of gardening 
that Adam and Eve are given is this idea of God inviting humanity to take this world that he's made and to cultivate it and to work with it and to get involved and to be co-creators. Not just to sit and watch creation happen, but to actually get involved as God's co-creators. And so for us to figure out what does it mean for us to love the world in a godly way, it has to do with celebrating, participating, getting involved in all of the wonderful stuff that comes out of the earth, so to speak. Art, beauty, creativity, design, music, literature, architecture, food, drink, film, all the stuff that, that humans have taken God's raw, raw materials and co-created with him. It's good. And there's so much that we are called to celebrate and to participate in. And so, for example, this weekend, here's, here was my weekend. Uh, yesterday, I spent the morning uh, building a deck. Several guys uh, came over and helped me uh, lay out some decking in our, in our backyard, okay? I went from there to play drums for a quinceanera. Um, that's as weird as it sounds, but it, it was an amazing night and great tacos and great celebration. Uh, this morning, I'm here preaching a sermon, and then tonight, I have tickets to go see Social Distortion, my favorite punk band in the world. I said tickets. I just have one. Jen said, hey, you go have fun. Uh, not really her scene. Um, I'm guessing your weekend was different than mine, um, but similar in some ways. That you didn't spend your whole weekend praying and fasting and worshiping and prophesying and discipling. Hopefully you did a lot of that stuff, but you probably spent time playing golf or floating the river or cooking or gardening or reading or, or whatever, or maybe you were working. Um, we look at all of that stuff, and there's a tendency among many Christian traditions to say there's the secular and there's the sacred. <laughs> That's not the right word. <laughs> the secular and the sacred. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> secular and sacred. There's the good, holy, spiritual stuff that God cares about, and then there's just kind of the earthy, mundane, ordinary stuff that God doesn't really care about. But if God loves the world, then we actually reject that whole thing. And we say that it's all good. It's all good. There is potential for good in all human culture. And so enjoying a good meal and planting a garden and watching a good movie and doing just the stuff that we do, hiking through the Cascades or whatever, uh, there is an invitation for us to enjoy God's good creation and to be involved in creating, and especially for those of you that are creatives or artists or anything like that, you have this special role, but all of us, whatever it is that we do for work or for leisure or whatever, all of that is actually an invitation to be co-creators with God. So secondly, that's what it would, might look like to love the world. I've got two more real quick. Thirdly, we steward God's world that he's entrusted to us. As followers of Jesus who worship the creator, that should have something to say about how we interact with the rest of creation, how we think about the non-human parts of the world that God has made. Yes, we celebrate God's image in humans, but we also celebrate God's creativity in the rest of the world. 
And so we want to think carefully. We want to be students of God's world. We want to be stewards of it, saying that he's entrusted this to us, not just to extort what it has and use its resources for our own self, but actually to live gently and to create environments where lots of different life and species and ecosystems can, can flourish and be sustained. And so as Christians, it matters how we interact with the environment, where we get our food, where we shop, how we, uh, the impact of our business and industry and life decisions upon the rest of the world. God loves the world, and we want to love it as well. And then the last thing I'd say is that if we are to love the world in a godly way, we would see our work not just as a job, but as a vocation. The word vocation comes from the root word voca, where we get vocal or voice. So God has a voice that he's given to each one of us, a song that our life is meant to sing, a calling upon our life, and we want to steward the one life he's given us well. If he's put in us specific passions or gifts or areas of interest or expertise, we don't simply see that as a career path or a way to make money, although there's nothing wrong with that, but we see it as a way to do all that we do for the glory of God. And so for some of us, that looks like chasing that dream, that thing that he's put on us and arranging our life in order to steward well the gifts and talents he's given us. For others of us, it simply means doing the job in front of us and seeing that we're doing our part in God's uh, creation and redemption story and that every job matters. Like nobody as a kid thinks, I want to grow up and be the dude that paints the lines on the highway right? Maybe you did, but most of us, we want to be like astronauts or basketball players or whatever it is, but aren't you glad that some dude paints the lines on the highway? Like, what would the world be like without that? We desperately need people to do all the different things. And so my encouragement to you is whatever your job is, that you would as an opportunity to participate in God's good world and to make it even more of a place for human flourishing. And so those are some of the ways that I think we can love the world in a godly way. Now in the text, we get the flip side of this whole thing. We get a picture of what loving the world in a worldly way looks like. And it's a pretty uh, stark warning. And so if we want to know what worldliness looks like, he basically describes it for us in verse 16. For he says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but, what, but from the world. And so worldliness, again, is treating the world as if the world is all that there is. So a godly engagement with the world is interacting in God's world, participating in it, and enjoying it, recognizing its its uh, relationship to creator, receiving it as a gift of grace, receiving it as an invitation to be part of who God is and what God's doing. Worldliness, or loving the world in a sinful or broken way, is when we remove creator from creation and we engage and live in the world as if it's all that was. And so John uses these three phrases, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, to describe uh, worldliness. He uses the word lust twice. What is lust? 
Oftentimes we think that it's desire for sinful things. It's when the things that we want are not holy or righteous or good things. That's not actually how the Bible uses the word lust. Lust is when we over-desire things. It's actually when we give too much desire to anything. That's lust. When we want something too much. Okay? And so... When it comes to the question of desire, other religions would say the goal is to not have desire, to kill desire. That's not what Christianity says. It actually says desire is a good thing. It's okay to want things. It's okay to want a certain job or a certain house or to look a certain way or to achieve a certain goal. Desire is a good thing. Christianity doesn't call us to kill our desires, but it does call us to check them. Check your desires. Because when desire becomes something more than it ought to be, that's when it becomes this thing called lust. When it's not just that there's something I want and I'm going to try to pursue it, but when it's I can't live without that thing. I can't be happy until I get that. I won't be satisfied or complete until I achieve that. No matter what we're talking about, that's when we're talking about lust. Could be lust of the flesh, physical, pleasure kind of experiences, or lust of the eyes, the way things appear. And so there's nothing wrong with desiring pleasure, or good food, or sex, or a nice house, or whatever it is, the things that drive us. There's nothing wrong with desiring those things. The problem is when those desires begin to dictate the affection of our souls when we elevate the object of our desire to the place that only God is to be in our lives. And so this is what it means when he says in verse 15, don't love the world or the things of the world. Don't allow the things of the world to become the ultimate object of your desire and affection. Yes, enjoy the world, partner with God in the world, live in the world, but only God should be the object of your ultimate love. So let me give you a couple examples. For example, how do you know if you're worldly? If you spend all your money on yourself, you're worldly. This feels like a, uh, it might be a redneck joke or something like that, but it's actually not funny. <laughs> if you say you're a Christian, but you think that the biblical paradigm of giving away at least 10% of your income is ridiculous, then you're worldly. You're elevating this life and this world over the things of God or over God himself. You are acting as if this world is all there is. You are literally investing your income and your finances just in the world. But if you're godly, then there will be a change of your heart, a change of your affection, and you will no longer see your money and your possessions simply as a means to improve your worldly life, but actually as a way to participate in the kingdom of God that never ends. And Jesus talks a lot about this. Where are we going to invest our treasure? Just in the things of the world? Or would we actually follow in the footsteps of a generous God? 
who delights in investing in the world that is to come as well. And so greed, not being a giving and generous person, is a symptom of thinking that this world is all there is. Another example, uh, worrying. If you're somebody whose life is marked by constant worrying, you're always worrying about everything that could go wrong, always worrying that you can't trust people, always worrying that the worst thing is going to happen. These kinds of people say that they suffer from PTSD, pre-traumatic stress disorder, right? If you are a chronic worrier, and I'm not talking about true mental health issues, I'm just talking about navigating life and not being able to trust God, you are worldly, right? There's more to this world. You're living as if this world is all there is. And that's where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount specifically commands his followers, do not worry. Because your Father in heaven knows you. This world isn't all there is. There's more to life than what you can see in front of you. And so worry is a symptom of worldliness. I could keep going, but you guys get the point, right? There's lots of different ways that worldliness creeps into our lives. And so why would we choose to love the world, love the world the way God loves it and not love the world the way of the world? Why would we choose to enter into a godly or Christian vision of, of the world? Well, he tells us why in verse 17. The world and all its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The world is passing away. It will be and is being restored and reconciled and made whole, but only because we have a king in Jesus who, is, who has entered it and planted the seeds of his kingdom here. But outside of Jesus, there is no hope for the world. There's no reason to be optimistic that human history has a happy ending. The world is passing away, and if we build our lives on the world, then we're going to pass away with it. And we know this at a really practical level, right? The stuff that we want, the stuff that we save up for, the stuff that we think I, my life would be so much better if I had that. Well, what happens? Within a few years, it's all obsolete anyways, right? Especially with technology or cars or clothes. We're like, if I could just have the newest, latest, greatest thing, then I would be set. And then you are set for like a month, and then it's old and it doesn't work unless you update the software and it's like they're doing it on purpose or something, right? <laughs> like the whole consumer mentality is built upon this desire for the things of the world and we know they're going to pass away, but we just, we, we act as if they aren't. And it's not just true at the consumer level, it's true at a soul level as well. If I could achieve this, have that, go there, become this, then I would be happy. And it's not those things most often that are the problem in and of themselves. It's what we're looking to those things to be for us. And so if we build our life on a world that's passing away, then we're going to die with it. But if we build our life on Jesus and his unshakable kingdom, this is a world that's not passing away. This is a world that's just getting started. This is a kingdom that will never end. This is an invitation to build our lives and to invest ourselves 
into this greater picture and understanding of the world that will live forever. I don't know about you. That's what I want to build my life on. The unshakable kingdom of God. I want to be part of where this thing's going. I'll close by drawing our attention to the idea that in this passage, John isn't primarily juxtaposing worldliness and godliness through the lens of what we believe or how we live, although obviously both of those have something to do with it. But how does he primarily compare and contrast worldliness and godliness? Through the lens of love. So being a Christian isn't just about believing certain things, and it isn't just about living a certain way, but actually being a Christian has more to do with who do we love. Don't love the world or anything in it. We want to live in the love of the Father. So what John's doing is saying, I want you to pay attention to the direction your heart is facing. I want you to pay attention to what you love most. Where are your affections drawn? What are your desires pointing towards? Not just do you believe the right doctrines and keep the right rules. Do you really love God? It's about where are we looking for the satisfaction of our souls. And it seems to me that he's saying either we're going to direct our love and desire toward God first and most, or we're going to turn something else or someone else into our God. And that thing or person will become the primary object of our love. And in the end, they're going to disappoint us. Because in God, we have the one true love that we love because he first loved us. And he is the one and the only one that we can build our lives upon and trust that no matter what happens, no matter how hard life is, no matter what we lose, no matter how disappointed we are at times, that the one at the center of our soul will always be with us and his kingdom will never end. And so let me ask you, Antioch, where is your heart tempted to look for what only God can be? Who or what things in the world do your desires and affections and love point to most naturally? They may be good things, like work and family and ministry and church. Those are all good things. But only God can satisfy the desires of our soul. 